Welcome. You're listening to Living Faith Podcast. Starry skies, see your hand in time, in mind to lead me through the night. Amen. Tomorrow is Father's Day. Woohoo! Happy Father's Day to all the fathers. Roughly six weeks ago, we celebrated Mother's Day. And I'm thankful for those who can fondly embrace these days uh, in honor of their dad and mom. I'm a little saddened for those whose experience leaves them, you know, little concern for these holidays or even maybe reignites some troubled memories. I'm saddened by that. But whatever our our feelings or our recognition, the season of the year lends itself to thoughts about family. In pastoral terms, I hope this season raises our awareness in Christian homes. I hope it inspires households to evaluate their family influence and direction. And as you have, if you've been around here a while, you've already realized, I like to take advantage of these holidays and inspire us to consider Christian reflection for families and households during this season. You know, today, I, it's very comforting. Uh, I, I come to a service, sometimes I preach the scriptures and I recognize, well, I know of a situation or two that this is probably going to really be very helpful. I'm aware of some things. I try not to target them, and I surely don't call anybody my name. And today I'll tell you that I'm sharing things without any awareness whatsoever of any challenges. I'm not talking about the present or the past. I am talking today about the future. I'm sharing things for a better future. As God would help us, it's my goal to reduce heartache in the years ahead. I'd like to minimize and increase, rather, increase joy and increase a positive impact. I'm bringing you material today. There'll be some scriptures peppered here and there. It comes from my formal education. I've had a decent amount of that. It comes from my experience, failures and some successes. And it comes from 35 years of ministerial observation. I've been involved in ministry as my profession week in and week out for more than three decades. I want to bring some things that I've witnessed while working with families over the years. I want to say this, that in many cases I'm sharing things that I know and that I live because someone told them to me. Not original thoughts, but someone shared them with me. Mostly I'm sharing things learned because of congregations like this one. 
because of messages where I, I sat in a chair or a pew and listened and heard and received, because of relationships with fellow disciples. I can't help myself but emphasize that as with other kingdom development, congregational involvement inspires and accelerates discipleship progress. Something about the camaraderie and the responsibility and the accountability of a congregation that accelerates discipling progress. Here's the, here's the essence of my topic today. Here's a question that drives what I'm presenting. How can we improve generational discipleship? How can we improve generational discipleship? How can we increase the number of children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren who follow Jesus like you and I do, or, or better yet, follow him better than we do? To stand on our shoulders and become more in Christ than we are. You know, I... I I've, question I ponder more than just for this message, but it, it goes over in my mind. How is it that, that some people are ineffective at passing their faith to following generations? We see it in Scripture. Eli. Eli's a priest. He's ineffective with his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Here's what the Scripture records in 1 Samuel chapter 2. The the Bible says this, now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. Corrupt. On the other hand, there are people that impact generations for Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul noted this regarding Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1 and 5, Paul's talking to him. He says, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that's in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded is also in you. In one case, family doesn't even know the Lord. In another, faith is passed to a third generation. What differentiates the two? How can we improve generational discipleship. Now, we've become, a, we've become a society that leaves academic training, by and large, to professionals. Teachers, professors, corporate trainers. By and large, we leave the understanding and training in career to professionals. I, I want to make it clear, we cannot do the same for spirituality and morality not going to happen. I hope we present the best ministry team in this congregation as possible. We continue ongoing training. We do our best to present our best every time we gather. And yet those things are supplemental. Those things complement what's happening at home. If any of us depends on our families becoming spiritual or moral just because we help them participate in a great church, 
I'm afraid to, to declare that that's just not going to happen. We want to be a great church. We want to minister in powerful ways. But these arenas of spirituality and morality, families and households are primary. For generational success, these got to begin, develop, and be maintained at home. I've been part this quarter or this semester of a great faith group, a neighboring faith group called The Art of Neighboring. And in that group, we discovered or discussed the difference between being responsible to your neighbors and being responsible for your neighbors. In the author's explanation, responsible to means you love them, you encourage them, you bless them, you pray for them, you serve them. But being responsible for suggests responsible for their well-being or for their finance or for their success or failure, for their spiritual progress or for the strength of their relationships. Now, successful neighboring, and we've accomplished or, or rather recognized the truth of these authors, successful neighboring requires you got to know your boundaries. And my neighbors are adults. I'm responsible to them to love my neighbor, but I'm not responsible for them. I don't make their choices. But in families, hear me, it's different. We're responsible to and for in our households. Our children are in our homes. Parents are responsible for. In Ephesians 6, 4, the Apostle Paul made it clear, and, and frankly, he calls out fathers. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord, it says in the New Living. Fathers, parents, families are responsible for kingdom training in our homes, directing them in the right path. Concerning godly discipline, instruction, let me just call it here. If you can't hear anything else, hear this. When it comes to passing on kingdom promise, do all you can as soon as you can. Do all you can as soon as you can. Because time flies. Quickly, babies become adults. They leave our homes. And adults are free to make their own choices. And they choose their own friends. And they choose their own influences. And they choose their spouses. And spouses influence one another. Hopefully for the better. But not always. Some spouses lead others to greater discipline and some influence others to lesser devotion. And these new families are reformed either way. And the question is, will they follow Christ? Now, due to free will, which every adult has, it seems unreasonable to expect 100% will follow 100%. And yet it also seems improper to think no one will. When I see the examples, I, I, I lean into the example of 
Timothy and Eunice and Lois, and I, I want to prevent as much as possible the impacts of an Eli. What happens in homes to produce more Timothys and fewer Hophnis? Recently, I ran across some photos of homes that are, you know, less blessed than mine. Even in this modern day, I saw homes with no running water, no indoor plumbing. Now, as, as good Pacific Northwest campers, we might choose a day in the woods without those luxuries. And when we do, we camp at a primitive campsite. Primitive camping. No plumbing, no running water. In the United States, it was until the 1840s that indoor plumbing was primarily found only in the homes of the rich. Prior to that, people had to live near water sources or have a well, and, and outhouses were the standard. But now we consider those circumstances to be primitive. The times before we knew about plumbing. Today, I'll confess, when I talk about plumbing, there's a reason there's a dash in plumbing. Because I'm not talking about pipes today. What I'm talking about today is having things be plumb, straight up and down vertical. Now, this metal object at the end of this string is called a plumb bob. Some of you might be very familiar with that. But a plumb bob is to dictate, is it absolutely vertical? If not, then we say things like, it's out of plumb, it's out of true. It's not perfectly straight up and down. The sturdiest, safest structures are built with concern for being in plumb. You want it to be as straight up and down as possible. You don't want it being off a few degrees. We don't want it too far forward or, or too far back. We don't want it too far to the right or too far to the left. That's my right and left. I know which one's which. And the truth is, wouldn't it be easy if plum only involved this dimension in this dimension. But plumb is a 360 degree concern. There are many different forces that can press out of plumb. It's not a simple one or two things to pay attention to, but there are forces that come in any of 360 degrees that can press us out of plumb. Because you want things to be right in the early on. This here's the thing. You know, when you're an individual, if you're not in plumb, it doesn't seem to make as big a difference at the top. But then at some point in time, you, you marry, and now you're responsible for others. You're responsible for your spouse. And the same amount of being out of plumb now has a greater impact because it's not just me, it's me and. 
And then in many households, there are children that come along at some point along the way. And now we're looking at, again, remaining and keeping things in plumb. And that if indeed I, I keep as true as I can be, then extends farther. But the little things that were kind of off when I was by myself make a bigger difference farther down the line. And, and truth is, as we began, if we're not attentive to plumb as soon as we can possibly be, and there's a reason that non-plumb elements that don't get addressed early on show up farther down the line. Plumbing. Plumbing. Impacts generational discipleship. Well, what if there are errors in plumbing? Can they be remedied later on? Yeah, yeah, they can. But the truth is, as early as as soon and, and maintained is better. If I can straighten some things out early on, it's easier to do at this level than to try to fix at this level. It can be done. But usually if you're waiting until later on, it's going to be more expensive and take more time and be more costly can it be repaired? Yeah, but not, not in every circumstance. And there's going to be a greater challenge. When building families, hear me today, it's best to establish plumb early and do all you can as soon as you can. And here's the other thing about families and kingdom of God and households. You don't address plumb just once. You know, well, we set this up, you know, uh, as an individual back in college, as a young adult, I got my life all trued and everything's square. I don't have to pay attention to that no more. No. I married another good person who's good and plumb as well. And, and we took some, some training and we've made some commitments and our family's good. We're in good shape. Everything's fine. We don't have to pay attention to that. No. No, that's not the case. Why? Because there are forces at work. There are forces that press against plumb. There are things that combat. Let's talk first about the forces of spiritual and natural. Here's a, here's a key question for all the adults in every household, dad, mom, guardian, whatever. Here's a, a pivotal question. Do I believe that salvation is the most important thing for my family? Do I believe that salvation is the most important thing for my family? You know, we likely have other valuable goals for our home. That's fine. But is eternal salvation in Christ what is most important? It's long been offered that you can determine a person and a household's values by reviewing calendars and bank accounts. 
when we're spending our time and we're spending our treasure, is eternal salvation what's most important in our families, in our households? Is it more important than academics? Is it more important than friends and activities? It's easy to verbally respond to the question. I'm, I'm inviting a review of the calendar and the bank account. The effort, the impetus, the intentionality. Is it more important than sports and hobbies? Over my years in ministry, I began in youth ministry, spent 10 years working with young people, and that's when all my hair fell out. I watched families who didn't have money for youth camp had money for softball. I watched families whose calendars were too full to take children and get them to youth rallies, but they never missed a soccer practice. What we really believe in is legitimized by our calendars in our bank accounts is the salvation of our family what matters the most. I appreciate families wanting to provide opportunities that we've enjoyed previously or maybe never got to enjoy before. There's nothing wrong with that unless pursuing natural things overshadows pursuing eternal things. You see, just natural things and push us out of plumb. It just push us out of plumb. I've watched spiritual flames diminished and extinguished as families allowed pitch, hit, and run to push aside word, worship, and prayer. I've watched parents who knew the Lord but were so committed to their careers that their children became like Eli's that didn't know the Lord. Oswald Chambers, I'm reading his devotional at this point, and he wrote, If we do not apply our beliefs about God to the issues of everyday life, the vision God has given us will never be fulfilled. He went on to say the acid test is obedience to God's vision in the details of our everyday life. 60 seconds out of every minute, 60 minutes out of every hour, not just during times of personal prayer or public meetings. I just invite every household of everything we're teaching in our homes and everything that we admonish, we instruct, and we discipline, how much of our effort is centered on eternal things. Generational families seek spiritual forces to keep their homes in plumb. Let's talk about another one, another two forces, spontaneity and consistency. These are forces in our homes, spontaneity and consistency. 
Now, now spontaneous spirituality is lovely. It, it is, it's refreshing. I'm so thankful for those special, unplanned times when the Lord of glory impacts my life in unexpected ways. To this day, I remember moments praying with our babies before they went to sleep and all of a sudden the presence of the Lord come in that room. Oh, amazing. I like those times when you're just driving along down the road thinking about the things of God, maybe singing to some worship song and all of a sudden you're powerfully aware of God's presence. Awesome. I like the presence of God that happens when you get together with other believers. You know that. I'm a proponent of congregational life. I remember years ago being in a huge basketball arena for a meeting of Pentecostal young people. There were some adults there, but mostly teens, 18,000. I remember on a Friday evening, a friend of mine sat in a stool like this at a table like this, and he addressed that crowd. At the end, he invited them to pray, and all the way up in the 300 level, kids got out of their seats, put their faces in concrete, calling on the power of God. It, it was an amazing experience. I remember a few years ago, I was in an arena in Columbus, Ohio, and there was a push to bring people who needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time. And I watched at the conclusion of that service as they pushed chairs away from floor level and wave after wave of people came to the front and were receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit for the first time. I, I, I stood there in an area and watched what was happening and prayed as it was happening. Our daughters were with us. I'm so glad they experienced that because in that one service, 4,000 people received the gift of the Holy Ghost in one service amazing spontaneous spirituality is special making memorable moments everyone say moments but, but that force of spontaneous spirituality is a complement to consistent spirituality consistent spirituality is what creates generational households, not miraculous moments. I've watched families that were concerned only for big church events, camps, retreats. Those would replace day-to-day, week-to-week. Time and time again, I've witnessed families that look for the spontaneous to replace the consistent. Just hear me today. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Spontaneous spiritual encounters are not sufficient. Discipleship is a daily endeavor. Consistent spirituality cannot be forced out by spontaneous encounters. If our household will be a plumbed household... We know this, both of those things matter. What, what is it? Let me just provoke a little bit. Mr. Rogers is on a roll today. 
What, what forces press against consistent spirituality in our homes? What are those ordinary forces that press us out of plumb? Maybe work. I'm so grateful for my Pentecostal heritage, a church I was raised up in in Maslin, Ohio. When I grew up, when disciples were placed on shifts that conflicted with congregational involvement, church-wide prayer was called. The church prayed that shifts would be changed. They prayed that change would allow greater participation. I would just say today that's still a worthy prayer. And it's still a prayer that God answers. Why would you do that? Consistency. It allows consistency. Work is one of those things that can press against consistency. Work's one of those forces that can push us out of plumb. We all have to work, preacher. I know. That's a biblical mandate. But it shouldn't press us out of plumb. What else might force against consistency? I've observed families that just moved out of plumb by the distance to the body. Increased physical distance from a church can decrease consistency. Let me just offer this. When we have a choice between living close to work and close to church, live close to church. When we have a choice. Why? Fundamental. The devil doesn't care if we go to work. He don't care. He's not after us. But as every family knows, there's something about kids puking on your way to church. There's something about couples fighting on your way to church. There's something about cars breaking down on your way to church. If you can choose, stay close to church. Well, how far is too far from church? Here's a fundamental element. The distance from church cannot be greater than our commitment to it. The distance from church cannot be greater than our commitment to it. Work, distance, these are just a couple of forces that can bend families out of plumb and can fool us into believing that spontaneous spirituality is good enough. Well, I'm not consistent, but man, I get a good church service in now and then. It it, it will not create generational discipleship. I don't want to be mean, but I do want to be direct. Hebrews 10, 24 Let us consider one another in order to stir up love 
and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Generational disciples are plumbed by consistency. Let me pose a couple of Proverbs to you. Proverbs eleven fourteen, where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs fifteen twenty two, without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Here, here's forces at work in our plum families. Independent thought and wise counsel. Both are forces. Both are valid. But they can go awry. Now the Proverbs I read from you are from Solomon. Wisest man. Wisdom gifted by God. If there was ever a human on the planet that said, I don't need anybody else's advice. That would have been the guy. But that's the guy who says... I need everybody's advice. The wisest man. Because you know what? Wisdom is not just knowledge. It's not just answers. It's putting knowledge to use. And Solomon realized there are others who know things I don't know. And there are others who have applied things I've not applied. And so the wisdom and counsel of others... Do we learn from trial and error? Yes, we certainly should. But if we will learn from others' trial and error, we save time, we save energy, we save frustration. Learning from others simply improves efficiency and success. And I think we need to take a little humility and confess. There are some things that if we were required to learn them, we probably never would. I don't know about you, but I thank God for Tom Edison. Because I don't ever see myself in any amount of time in any laboratory creating a light bulb. But by his wisdom, I'm glad to flip the switch. I can do that. I can't imagine a lifetime when I could invent and create an internal combustion engine. Or in today's day, an electromagnetic engine. But I'll accept the wisdom of those who did, and I'll get in a car and enjoy personal transportation. Y'all with me? Wise counsel is like compared to turning on lights and driving cars. Wise counsel is accepting others' insight and benefiting from it. Years and years ago, I was a young couple contacted me. They were interested in me officiating their wedding. And I explained to them I would consider it, but candidly, I don't just do that. Uh, there are some prerequisites, some requirements in order to do that. And so they wanted me to explain. I said, well, here's the number one. There's going to be a number of pre-marriage counseling sessions. And immediately the woman replied, why? We're not fighting anymore. For some reason... I didn't end up officiating that wedding. 
In the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Plans are established. You know what? The multitude of counselors helps me to get another set of eyes on my plum. Hey, stand over on that side. See how it looks from there. Hey, you get over on that side. See how it looks from there. Will we learn from other families, from other couples, from other parents? Do we? How often do we ask those that we regard, what do you think? And here's the power of the what do you think question. That we ask before we make a decision that would tow us off plumb. Instead of asking when we realize we're already off plumb. Best case scenario is to pay attention prior rather than run for fixing afterwards. Homes that produce more Timothys are those that pursue the force of wise counsel. Here's another one I'll bring to your attention. Doing for and teaching how. These are forces that impact our homes. Doing for and teaching how. Our granddaughter, Celie, is almost two years old. And I've observed some things in the last couple of months. One is that there are some things that she can do on her own, and she does not want any help. (laughs) She's got some food that's particularly messy. My wife and I would want to feed her. Oh, oh no. I do it. Celie, do it. I do it. Celie, do it. Wanting that spoon and making a mess. But I've noticed this in her. There are things that she can do, and all of a sudden she wants me to do them. The other day I was sitting on the other side of the room in a chair, and she was there. She's on the other side of the room sitting on a stair on our landing. She drops a toy, looks up at me and says, Papa, get it. I said, Seely, get it. She said, Papa, get it. I said, Celie, get it. She said, Papa, get it. This went on five or six times. I did not get mad. I did not get loud. Neither did I get up. (laughs) Finally, she reached down and, and got her toy. It's amazing how, and just in human nature, that we want to start having other people do for us. Households get pressed out of plumb. Hear me. You want to talk about generational discipleship? We get pressed out of plumb when doing for dominates teaching how. I know it requires more time, usually, more effort to teach how than it does to do for. I know it usually requires a good bit of patience to teach how than it does to do for. But all that's on the front end. Later, efforts diminish when others know how. And when families succumb to the force of doing for, it tilts us because few cannot do it all, but they're supposed to. Families that pursue the force of teaching how keep their homes in plumb because you're, you're multiplying families' abilities and the way to go from an individual to a couple to a house with children 
to grandchildren is it's not just the first person who knows how. At some point, the generation extends too far, and that person cannot do it for everyone else. Generational discipleship happens when we teach how, knowing how. You know why? Because others cannot accomplish discipleship for me. Can I just inspire our households today as soon as possible? Generational disciples teach how to sing unto the Lord. As soon as possible, what it means to not just sing the words, but to understand them and share them as prayers. As soon as possible, you get them clapping their hands and raising their hands. They don't know what it means, preacher. That's fine. As soon as possible, you start teaching how because you can't do it for them. As soon as possible, you teach them to pray. Yes, we pray for them, but you teach them how to communicate, how to surrender to the Lord's power. As soon as possible, we teach them how to be consistent. As soon as possible, you teach them how to read the Word and to know the Word and to apply the Scripture as soon as you can. Generational homes teach how. To engage Christ and to follow him. A few verses after Paul admonished fathers to bring up children in the training and admonition of the Lord. In the same chapter, chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul writes this. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm. How about this? To be plumbed. Against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Those are the enemy forces that are pressing against plum families. Those are the uh, spiritual battles that are pressing against generational discipleship. After detailing the armor of God, then Paul wrote this in verse 18 of the same chapter. Pray in the Spirit at all times. And on every occasion, stay alert. Be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. If that's true for all believers, it's certainly true in our homes. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying prayer is our kingdom plumb bob. Prayer is what helps us to say, is, is that really vertical? Is that really true? Is that really genuine? Is that keeping us on the mark? It's the, it's the power of prayer. Prayer reveals the forces and their effects 
against our families. Prayer reveals the spiritual aspects of what we think might be just physical decisions. Prayer about family choices and decisions. Can I just inspire every household? Pray for your family more than you are right now. At all times. And in every occasion. I don't believe I'll ever run across an elder who will say, I wish I'd have prayed less for my family. I don't think I'll ever run across a successful disciple who says, I, I wish I'd have emphasized salvation less. Pray over their activities. Pray over their academics. Pray over their acquaintances. Saturate your family choices with prayer. You've been listening to the Living Faith Everett podcast series. Tune in next week for the next part of this series, or join us online at livingfaithministries.church.